If you have a Bible with you, find our, uh, our, our reading from 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. We're in the fourth week going of a series of talk sermons going through this letter. Today we've come to this second paragraph in chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, 4-10. Now what we're doing in this series is we're trying to learn better what it means to be Christians today in the world that we actually live in. And our passage this morning gives us three insights. It shows us that being a Christian in the world today is first of all a privilege. Secondly, there's a certain pain, suffering, that comes from being a Christian. And third, being a Christian today produces a particular responsibility. So three things. Number one, the privilege of, being a, of believing in Jesus Christ. Number two, the pain that comes from believing in Jesus Christ. And number three, the responsibility we have as believers in Jesus Christ. All right, first of all, the privilege of believing in Jesus Christ. Notice how in our passage, Peter tells us over and over that when a person turns in faith to Jesus Christ, when you believe that he is the one true God, who took on flesh, and through his death and resurrection, he's overcome the powers that have held the world in their grip. That in Jesus Christ, God has defeated the ultimate force of evil. And the resurrection proved it. If Jesus overcame death, if he was raised from the dead, it could only be because he had overcome the forces that lead to death. The corrosive powers of idolatry and wickedness. And the point Peter makes here is that when you turn toward Jesus with your life, with your love, with your loyalty, when you turn in true and believing faith, when you believe that Jesus died a slave's death out of sheer love, the same love that made the world, when you are captivated by that love, when you confess that the one through whom all things were made is now the one through whom, by his crucifixion, all things are being remade, renewed, reconciled, and healed. When you confess Jesus as the crucified and risen Messiah, the true Lord of the world, then you are taking your stand upon what? Upon a stone, a rock. A living stone. Jesus is the rock that God promised. Those Old Testament passages we heard read out of Psalms, out of Isaiah. Jesus is the rock that God promised all along to build a temple. Now here's the key. What are temples for? A temple is a place, a structure in which a God dwells. 
So what we see is that those of us who are Christians, God, when we turn in faith to Jesus Christ, God puts us on this rock and he builds us into the temple. This is a place in the Bible where Christians are referred to as the temple of God. It's not that Susanna in herself is God's temple. It's not saying that Kyle's body is the is the temple of God. It's that Courtney, she's turned in faith to Christ, and he, he's putting her into this thing he's doing, and I've turned in faith to Christ, and Emma has, and Grace has, and all of us in this room that have turned to Christ, we become the temple. So the church of the incarnation is not this building. It's Isaac, and Sheldon, and, and Susanna, it's deacon. It's all of us in this room that have turned him in Christ by his spirit. He makes us into something that he fills with his spirit. We become this thing that's a temple. This, we become among us he dwells. Look, look at verse 5. It says he makes us into a spiritual house. A suitable residence for the one true God, the God who alone is the living God and lives forever. Now, this is a remarkable image. This idea that the church of the incarnation is not this building, but the church of the incarnation is the Christians who together come into this building to worship, that it's us who God fills with His Spirit. God dwells among us. Now, think about how... think. Try, just try to think about what this is saying. This is saying that the God who made the cosmos, the God who is so beautiful, he made the Shenandoah Valley. The God who is so creative, he made the puffer fish. The God who is so fast, so massive, that one of the things he made, the universe, we are all the time discovering new corners of it that we didn't even know. It's that, it is that big. That this God is not only massive, but he dwells among us. He's close to us. He's with us to love us and to heal us. And that's just an enormous privilege that you get when you become a Christian. And, and those of us who are Christians, not only are we the temple, but then he does this really cool thing with his metaphors. He then says right after that, that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, verse 5. And then he says, to be holy priests. We're not only the temple, we also are the priest in the temple. Sean is a priest in this temple. Now, what does that mean? That means, it says, look right after that, he gets to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. In other words, not only are we the place where he dwells, we are the ones who bring him pleasure. Kurt Thompson, this psychiatrist who came and spent a day with us and spoke at Cafe Veritas, he, he said, one of the things he said was that every human being comes into this world looking for someone looking for them. A, a friend of mine is in a group therapy session with Kurt Thompson. Kurt Thompson does group um, therapy, and a friend of mine is in one of his groups. And one day, one of the uh, psychiatrists that works for Kurt was trying to help the group understand this, this idea that 
all of us are born into this world looking for someone, looking for us. And, and this, this lady uh, therapist, she told this story of when she was a little child. She would play hide and seek with her dad, and she would hide behind this chair that looking back, clearly she was visible. And her dad would come in the room and say, where is she? And he'd pick up the couch. Is she under there? No. And he'd pick up a book. Is she behind the books? No. Is she behind the lamp? No. And then he'd go to the chair. Is she behind the chair? And she would jump up screaming, and she'd run around, and she'd hug her dad, and then she'd say, again, again, again. And he'd go out of the room, and she'd hide in the exact same spot. And um, he'd do the exact same thing again. And then she said to the group, and we never escape it. That's all of us looking for someone looking for us. And that's the deepest delight in our heart. This is our privilege we get to be priest that he finds acceptable. Think, think about the offerings you brought him this morning. Think about how inadequate your confession was. Think about how distracted you were during the psalm. And you know what he does with all of that stuff? He takes it and he does with it what, what parents do with, with, you know, they're not exactly masterpieces that they put on their refrigerators that their kids make, right? But this is God. He takes all of the inadequate junk that you bring to him, even on your best day and, and even on your worst day, and he accepts it. This is, this is a remarkable thing. Kurt Thompson, another thing he said was that we need to believe this. We need to believe that when we wake up in the morning, God is in the room and he is saying, I can't believe I get to be your God. How many parents have said that of their babies? Now, if a parent can say that of their child, do you not think the creator of the universe who is just love to the center of his being says that about you? As Christians, we have this enormous privilege. Look at verse 6. It stands in Scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Do you see that when we turn to Jesus in faith, that in the same way the Father has chosen the Son before the foundations of time, and the Son is precious to the Father, when you turn in, in faith to Jesus and you give Him your love and your loyalty, that chosenness, that preciousness goes over onto you. So that now God sees you as chosen, as precious to Him. If you're a Christian, you are chosen. You are God's Beloved. And, and look there at the end of verse 6. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Isn't that a great privilege? I mean, think about how the Bible starts. The Bible starts with Adam and Eve in the garden, naked and unashamed. And then the next thing that happens produces all this shame. It clobbers them. It covers them. It, it, it just pours out on them. And the story of the Bible is the story of God promising us that if we would just look to him, shame will not have the last word. It won't. Think about this. If you are a Christian, you are headed toward a future where all of your shame will be gone. 
all of the shame that you've brought onto yourself because of your own brokenness, all of the shame that other people have poured on you, whether it's all of this stuff, there is coming a day when the one whose opinion matters will have no, no look in his eye of shaming you. All of that shame that you live with, that you wake up to, that you go to bed with, that you kneel on your knees and bring into confession, all gone. This is a privilege. This is an enormous privilege. And then there's all the stuff in verse 9. I mean, it's four titles of honor. You are a chosen race. Christians are a race of people. Now think about this. Some of us come from really good races. I was born in Louisiana. Obviously, one of the top races in the world. But some of you weren't born there. And the good news is, (laughs) look, we come from all these different races in this room. But you know what? We've formed a third race, a different race, a new race. You know why? Because Leia Sankoy and I, who have a very different genealogy, but now we have the same father and the same big brother. God has made us into a new race. And then it says we're a royal priesthood. We're the king's priest. What an incredible job. I mean, think about the benefit package that comes with this job. Think about the job security that comes with this job. We're a holy nation. We hold dual citizenship. We're citizens of the, of the nation of our birth or the nation of, of our immigration. And we are citizens of God's kingdom. We get to be citizens of a kingdom that welcomes everybody who shows up on her shores. We are citizens of a king. We are are a holy nation. And this nation guarantees protection and care. Nobody will fall through the social service net. This is a nation that we should die for. And fourth, a people for God's own possession. If you are a Christian, your most fundamental identity is that you belong to God. Who are you? I'm a Christian. I belong to God. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that your victim narrative no longer sits at the center of you. It's decentered. All of the bad things that have happened to you that that are trying to make your victim status the center of your identity. Move over the center of your identity. Who are you? I am a Christian. I belong to God. And then in verse 10 it says again, we are God's people. Who are you? I'm a Christian. I belong to God. And finally at the end of verse 10, those who turn in faith and love and loyalty to Jesus are the ones who have received mercy. What an incredible privilege. I mean, we don't have to have a show of hands, but who thinks the person sitting next to them needs mercy, right? Um, I need mercy. Tom clearly needs mercy. If you know Tom, Tom needs mercy. Not Mike. Not Mike. Yeah, Mike needs. We need mercy. And if you're a Christian, gratis, free, mercy. Paul, the first letter the the Apostle Paul writes, the letter to the Galatians. In the middle of that letter, we get a glimpse into the driving heart of Paul. He says, the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. The, The man who wrote the book of Romans 
clearly one of the greatest intellects of Western civilization. At the beating center of him was that God who made all things loves me. What a privilege it is to be a Christian. That's the first thing we see in this passage. But in this passage, we see there's more. We see that the privilege of being a Christian brings pain and suffering. The pain, the suffering that comes from believing in Jesus. Go back to verse 4. Notice Jesus Christ was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And with that phrase... Peter sets up a series of polarities about Jesus. Rejected by men, chosen by God. Dishonored by men, honored by God. Looked at as worthless by men, precious to God. And he sets up these polarities about Jesus, and then he takes you and I, and he says when we turn in faith to the the risen Jesus Christ, he puts us right onto Jesus. And now we have those same polarities. Because this rock we're standing on is offensive. It offends people. Those standing on that rock, they get it too. They get the shame, the dishonor, and the rejection. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles... In the dispersion. Go over to chapter 2 and look where we're going to go next week. But just a little preview. Chapter 2 verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Some translations aliens and strangers. Both of these descriptions are pointing to an essential characteristic of what it's like to be a Christian. And it's this. We are not at home anymore. When you turn in faith and love to Jesus Christ, you leave home. And the friends you used to be at home with, you're not at home with them anymore. And the mom and dad that you used to have so much in common with, you're not at home with them anymore. And the children that you used to share so much with, you're not at home with them anymore. To be a Christian is to have declared allegiance to a different homeland than the one you live in. And the people we live in this homeland with right here, America, they suspect that we're traitors. They know it. They know that when that there are issues we won't support them on. They know that there are agendas and values that we're going to bail and not stand with them for anymore. You see, they know that when push comes to shove, we can't be depended on because we have another citizenship that trumps this one. And we can't be depended upon to support and contribute to some of the, their key values and their fundamental, uh, their fundamental goals. For example, sex. 
we will not support them. This is a fundamental issue that God's people have frequently been out of step with their nation on. This past week, Janelle Monet came out self-identified as pansexual and was praised across the media for this enlightened position that her love is not narrow. It is not bound by gender. She trumped the homosexual community who's locked into binaries by saying she's not so narrow that she would only stick with one gender. She doesn't consider gender important to love. And she was applauded for it. When we come out and say the things that obviously Christians say about this, we are not applauded for it anymore. We once were, but not anymore. You see, God's people have always, always had a strict sexual ethic with absolutely zero tolerance for disagreement. God's people have always been intolerant of people claiming to be Christian disagreeing on the narrow sexual ethic that is consistent across cultures and times for Christianity and Judaism. God has given us gift, the gift of sex, but it can be only expressed in a healthy way in a marriage between a woman and a man. All other manifestations of sex are unholy and unhealthy. And sexual holiness isn't a, just a rule, some arbitrary command. It's part of what it means to turn from idols, to turn from giving something power over you that should not have power over you, to turn from that to the living God. It is part of being a genuine image-bearing Christian image-bearing person. And there are plenty of issues like this, issues that our allegiance to Jesus Christ makes us offensive, out of step, confusing, unenlightened, ignorant, dangerous. From the beginning, for example, of Christianity, a key issue has been abortion. From the beginning, uh, the most recent sociological studies and historical studies of, of the Roman Empire estimate that at the time of Christianity, the Roman Empire needed 500,000 new slaves a year to keep functioning. And that almost half of them came from the common practice of infant exposure. You had a child that you didn't prefer their gender, you didn't like their looks, or you didn't feel like you could give, you felt like they were taking money away from you setting up a smaller number of children into a really better way of life. These were all the reasons, no new reasons. These were all the reasons that you would then take the child. And by the way, they had abortion, but the deal with infant exposure was you could wait until the child was born to decide if you liked the gender, the look, the ability, or whatever. And then you could expose them. And so you would take them to a place where the slave traders went. And that child either died because he was rejected and died of exposure, or he was sold into slavery, or he was sold into prostitution. Prostitution then, like today, was fundamentally rooted in slavery. And Christians, of all of the religions, Christians were vocally, consistently, 
and publicly against it. And they were looked down upon as being unsophisticated. As being unkind. Look, if you've had an abortion, part of growing up into Christ will involve seeing your abortion as murder. And then bringing the full weight of that guilt and shame to the one who gives mercy and forgiveness. And the list just goes on and on. It's not only what we do with our bodies, it's what we do with our money. Do you know that this week, over the last couple of weeks, a group of people in our church have put their money together and bought a car for a woman in our church who could not afford a car and had no family to help her. We're a part of a church that acts like family. People unrelated to one another biologically, sacrificially take care of one another. This is a value that the church has and it's been going on forever. And it's not only what we do with our money and what we do with our bodies, it's what we do with our time. We only have a day and a half for the weekend, Friday afternoon and Saturday. And here we're starting our weekend worship and we're not camping with our friends and we're not going all over the place doing everything, extending our weekend into Sunday. This is weird stuff. And it's what we believe. And it goes on and on and on. And while there was a time in America where being a Christian, what you did with your body and your money and your time and so many other things, there was a time where this gave you positive status. Uh, one guy who's been looking at this, the data on how Christians are viewed in our society, he says that it appears to him, broadly speaking, up to around 1994, to be seen as a Christian was a social positive. Now, obviously, different parts of America, different sectors, different places, um, the timeline's different. But he said, broadly speaking, generally speaking, up to 1994, being a Christian got open doors for you. You were seen as a positive. Somewhere between 94 and 2010, it, it became kind of a neutral thing. And from around 2014, generally speaking, in a growing number of places, a growing number of professions, a growing number of circles, to be a Christian is a negative status issue. For example, two weeks ago, um, a New Yorker, uh, a piece in the New Yorker, Chick-fil-A's creepy infiltration of New York City. And um, what the author is doing, most, most of the piece is about the evils of fast food and the ubiquity of, of Chick-fil-A, which got on the author's nerves. But the author seems particularly angry with the fact that the CEO of the company is on record against gay marriage. And that the way the piece is framed Christianity is the villain. Uh, in the 2000, in the May 2018 edition of GQ, uh, there's 20, 21 classics don't waste your time with. Number 12, the Bible. It's rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who have, in actuality have not read it. Those who have read it know that while there's some good parts, overall, it's not the finest thing man has ever produced. It's repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times, ill-intentioned. If the thing you heard that was good about the Bible was all the nasty bits, then I proposed Agatha Christoph's The Notebook, A Marvelous Tale of Two Brothers. Now, uh, these aren't isolated incidents. This is a change. This is a, 
This is a change that's going on. We live in a moment very much like the moment the people who were first recipients of this letter lived. Like them, we live in a moment where it's not a legalized persecution. It's a social persecution. We are beginning to experience, and some of you, depending on where you work or where you live or where you move, you're way down the road. Some of you, you'll die before this ever hits you based on your kind of profession and circles you move in. But overall, and it's increasingly become the case, that we're experiencing the slow-working, malignant cancer of social opposition. And that might seem like a trivial way to put it, but to Peter's way of thinking, the stakes are high. Because this kind of testing pushes you into a crisis of decision. Will you be faithful or not? In a thousand little ways, Will you cave under the negative social status impact of the peculiar views that are at cross purposes with the reigning value system of the world we live in? Look at chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test your faith as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Remember what I said at the beginning of this. Because we're on the rock that is offensive, we're mapped into it. We're offensive. That's what Peter does with the suffering. He says, don't be surprised. You are sharing in Christ's sufferings. Christ rejected, you get rejection. Christ dishonored, you experience dishonor. Christ looked at as rubbish, as not valuable, you looked at as rubbish, as not valuable. You see... um, Teenagers, college students, you're hanging out with your friends and suddenly the conversation gets to a place that you know if, if you articulated a faithful Christian position that says gay marriage is unhealthy, you know you will sound like an idiot. You will sound like somebody who's mean. You will sound like somebody who is rejecting somebody's core identity. And in that moment, you pull that rejection into yourself and you embrace it. It is the cross. You are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And you hold that. And you embrace that. And adults, in those moments, a thousand little ways where you're in a group or you're around somebody and you know that to be faithful to the way of Christ is to be seen as somebody who's harmful to community, who's out of touch, who's not smart, who whatever it is in that moment, all of that pressure, you need to know that is not trivial. That is a cross. 
That is the cross. And you climb on it and you hold it and you pull it into yourself. Because in that moment, if you don't, you are rejecting the cross. And if you do, you are embracing the cross. This is the pain that comes with the privilege. And it leads us to the responsibility. Look at verse 5. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. No blood, no sacrifice. Don't read over that word as if it is your friend. Your responsibility is to offer a sacrifice. And your sacrifice is the rejection in that moment by people whose opinion matters. That's the sacrifice you offer up to God. In that moment... When you embrace that embarrassment and that shame and that being looked upon as antisocial and unhelpful and as a problem and a plague, as you embrace it in that moment, that is the sacrifice that God accepts. He receives that from you the way He received the Son's death. He receives it. Even if in that moment, like the sun, you feel God forsaken. He receives it. Look, 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 at, look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All the good stuff, all the privileges. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now we want to think that proclaiming the excellencies is a fun thing, but it is not. It sucks. Because in the book of 1 Peter, go back to chapter 4, verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The way we manifest to the world the beautiful glory of Christ is the same way Christ manifested God's beauty. And what moment in the life of Jesus did he show the love and the beauty of God more than any other moment? When he was stripped naked and shamed, and nailed to a cross. That is the manifestation of God's beauty and God's love. And so you and I, our responsibility is to walk into these rejections and embrace them and know that when we do, the way God secured the victory against the dark powers, the cross, is the way we implement that victory, the cross. No cross no victory. The way we shine the light of God into the darkness is when the darkness washes over us and we embrace the suffering. And in that moment, we are manifesting God's glory into the world. You see, the responsibility of being a Christian is to declare the beautiful glories of Christ and the way they are declared is the way they 
started being declared. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, may more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor. Of the How does our faith result in God's glory? Through its testing. It's all over this letter. Left, right, and center. What he's doing is he's trying to give us a perspective on suffering. He's trying to show us that our suffering for Christ is because we've been mapped into Christ and evil always overreaches. And just like on the cross, evil reached and devoured Jesus, it overreached and played right into God's hand. And when evil reaches into your life, if you are on the rock, it will overreach. It will play right into God's hand. And even the darkness will not be dark to him. And even the darkness that's overwhelming you, he will summon up into his purposes and he will move the kingdom forward. This is our responsibility. Something happened when Jesus died on the cross, a result of which Satan and all of the dark forces no longer have actual authority. And now the prison doors stand open and you are free to leave. You're free to leave your idolatries. You're free to leave all of that darkness. You're free to turn to Christ if you haven't done it. Do this. There's such privilege. There is pain. But even in that pain, Christ will be with you and you will discover what it means to be genuinely human, to the praise of his name. Let's pray.